you ever been confronted by one of those facts that you say, can that really be true? You can go online and you can find all kinds of these crazy ones, and I don't know if any of them are worthwhile, but a European company actually attempted to make a bike that flies. You can buy one. They got 25 off the ground. Pun intended. Uh, Vacuum cleaners once were originally drawn by horses. If you do any research on vacuum cleaners, they once were an entire thing that was dragged by horses with a great big glass bucket that your neighbors could see how dirty your house really was. Uh, A lady says she lost her wedding ring in the backyard, and 16 years later, it was stuck to a carrot. A quarter of all your bones are located in your foot, Do you know a cumulus cloud can weigh over a million pounds? Stand under that next time. Uh, I thought this was interesting. Because of the danger involved in going to the moon, none of the astronauts were able to get life insurance. And so the way they got around it is they signed a whole mess of memorabilia with the understanding that if they died, their families were to sell it and hopefully live off that. Sumo wrestlers, I'm told, before they compete, want to make babies cry. It's good luck. Australia is a weird continent. It has both a bright pink and a bright purple lake. And I'm almost wanting to go down to New Mexico. There's a stretch of Highway 66 that if you drive 45 miles an hour, the cuts in the road play America the Beautiful for you. The most quoted verse from the Old Testament in the New Testament is Psalm 110, verse 1. Psalm 110, verse 1, As the Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess, had I surveyed you this morning, and asked you what the most quoted verse from the Old Testament by New Testament writers was. Few, if any, would have come up with that. I mean, what in the world does that even mean? Why is it found throughout most of the epistles and even used by Jesus himself? One of the interesting things I find about the church calendar is we spend a lot of time talking about the death of Christ, and rightfully we should. It was on Calvary's cross that he paid the penalty for my sin and for yours. And so every month we gather around the communion table to remember the sacrifice that was given for our sins. We remember the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, the very reason why we are here this morning is because For most of human history, the day of worship was Saturday. God created in six days and rested on the seventh. Why are we here on Sunday, not Saturday? It's because Jesus rose from the dead, and that is so monumental of a a fact that it shifts the, the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. And every single week, we are commemorating the resurrection. We spend an awful lot of time talking about the birth of Jesus. Every single December, we take uh, the better part of a month to go through uh, the birth story. In fact, something that always intrigued me is people like to highlight births. I don't know if you know this or not, but this year you get an extra federal holiday. For the first time ever, Juneteenth is actually a federal holiday, so you get 11 this year. If you go through the 11 federal holidays, five of them are birthdays. The birthday of a nation, the birthday of a civil rights leader, the birthday of our first president, the birthday of our nation, and the birthday of Jesus. What have you accomplished on your birthday? 
And yet, for whatever reason, we celebrate birthdays. I, I fear the part of this story of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection that is often forgotten is the ascension. Is the ascension really that big of a story? Uh, this morning, before we leave the Easter holiday, I, I did want to just take a, a morning and, and go through because th- that verse is actually speaking of the ascension. Let me show you that. If you go to Mark chapter 14, it's the story of Mark's record of Jesus standing trial before the high priest. And in verse 61, we pick up the story. It says, but he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ? I know that too often we get so familiar with the word Christ that we almost think of it as Jesus' last name. The word Christ is that incredibly important messianic title. It is, are you the one, the Old Testament told us to look for you? Are you the culmination of everything that has been written to this point? Are you... It's interesting, if you go back, the Jews refused to use the word God. In fear of taking the Lord's name in vain, they refused to say the name Lord. And so the high priest doesn't say, are you the son of God? He, he uses a euphemism because he doesn't want a danger of, of taking the Lord's name in vain. And so he says, are you Messiah? Are you the Son of God. And what is Jesus' response? His response is interesting. He first of all says, I am. Now, I I can't prove this because Mark is written in Greek. Jesus most likely was speaking either in Hebrew or Aramaic, but the words I am in Hebrew are the covenantal name that God gave Moses for his people Israel. It's the word that sometimes is translated as Jehovah. It probably was pronounced something like Yahweh. When Jesus says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus is taking Psalm 110 and the name of God, and he's saying, yes, I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. I am divine. Throughout most of human history, there has been this struggle with whether or not Jesus is divine. In fact, if you go back to the first century, many people argued it. And all the way through the history of the church, one of the more recent movements, just a a decade or so ago, a gentleman wrote a book entitled How Jesus Became God. The thesis of his book was that the, the early disciples became so in love with Christ that they fabricated the idea of the resurrection and then they, I came up with this idea that Jesus was God. And part of his argument is, if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three synoptic gospels are written probably about 60 AD. The gospel of John clearly defends and defines Jesus as God, but that was written 90 AD or thereabouts. And so in that 30-year period, the Christians invented the idea that Jesus was God. And if you suggest that Matthew, Mark, or Luke would tell you that Jesus claimed deity, he will say, you just don't understand first century Jewish culture. And I will say, you're right, I don't. But I do know who did. The high priest. The high priest responds quite clearly. 
He knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. In fact, the high priest tears his garment and he says, what further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. He's claiming to be God. If the chief priests in the first century thought Jesus was claiming deity, I'm 2,000 years later not going to tell him he didn't understand first century Jewish culture. Jesus uses Psalm 110 to define, to defend his deity. In fact, the ascension becomes a huge part. In Acts chapter 2, we have Peter having been possessed or controlled by the Holy Spirit. They speak in these languages they haven't studied. Peter stands up and speaks, and he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has shown with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. It's interesting to me that Peter makes no attempt to defend the resurrection. He simply preaches from the resurrection. For in that period of time, that 50 days after the resurrection, everybody in Jerusalem had either met someone or heard firsthand information of someone who had seen the resurrection. There was no doubt about the resurrection. There was doubt about what it meant, yes. But Peter doesn't have to defend the resurrection. He just preaches from the resurrection. Because they knew it was fact. And in fact, he says the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did he set his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing today. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And it is the ascension that cuts to the heart of the Jews. Yes, Jesus died. Yes, Jesus rose from the dead. But Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. And on that Pentecost there were some 3,000 people that gave their lives to Christ, in large part because of the ascension. I, I could spend the rest of the morning going from passage to passage. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is going to speak of the ascension. I could go to 1 Timothy as he summarizes the life of Jesus. He'll do it this way. He says he appeared in a body and was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed in the world, and then he was taken up in glory. Colossians, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. No book in all of the New Testament. We'll talk more about the ascension, more about the necessity of the ascension than in the book of Hebrews. And in their final spots, Hebrews 11 is that great hall of faith in which the author of Hebrews is going to go through many of the lives in the Old Testament. And then in chapter 12, he's going to say, seeing we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and then was sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We go to Peter. Peter does the same thing. For Christ died for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with the angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. 
I could spend a lot more time this morning going from passage to passage, but let me just assert the ascension becomes a foundational belief in the early church. It's not just a throwaway topic. It's at the core of everything the church should stand for. So I've got a couple questions. Why did he wait? If all we had, in fact, Luke is the only author that gives us any of the details of the ascension. He does so at the end of, of Luke chapter 24. He throws out three verses. And if all we had was Luke 24, you would conclude that Resurrection Sunday went something like this. In the morning, Jesus appears to women. In the afternoon, he appears to a couple headed to Emmaus. In the evening, he appears to all of the disciples in the upper room. And then they go out and Jesus ascends. Thankfully, in Acts chapter 1, he gives us a little bit more detail, and he shares that Jesus waited 40 days. Why? Put yourself in Jesus' shoes just for a second. You have spent all eternity in the paradise called heaven. You humble yourself to take on human form. You come live in a sin-cursed world. You endure the mockery. You endure the physical torture. You endure the, the abandonment by your friends, the betrayal by one of your disciples. You are killed, and you rise from the dead. Wouldn't you want to get back to heaven? I would. Why did Jesus stay? Why did he stay a full 40 days well, Luke's going to throw out uh, uh, three reasons. The first is, he showed himself to many men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. One of the struggles I have when I come to many of the stories in Scripture is I wish they had more details. All right, Luke, I really appreciate that many convincing proofs. Could you give me a few of them? What exactly were these many convincing proofs? One of the intriguing things to me about the Gospels, if you put all the Gospels together, a, a third of Matthew, Mark, and Luke center on the final week of Christ. Half of the Gospel of John centers on the last week of Christ. So that means someplace between a third and a half of all of the information we know about Jesus centers on one week. Wouldn't it be nice to have that much detail on all the weeks of Jesus' life? Uh, to find out all of the miracles Jesus did, to listen to all of the sermons Jesus preached, to, to follow him from city to city and to see the things, hear the things, read the things that Jesus did. In God's infinite wisdom, he decided we didn't need that. We just need to believe him that he showed many convincing proofs. Back in Luke, there was the proof of his hands with hole prints in them. There was the proof of come touch me, feel me. There was the proof of eating food. There was the proof of numerous people seeing them. In Paul's description in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he's going to say, for what I received I passed on to you that is of the greatest of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And he appealed, appeared to Peter. Wait a second. Seems to me as I remember the story, didn't he appear to Mary first? How come Mary doesn't get listed? Why isn't it he appeared to Mary and then the women and then to Peter and then to the 12? I don't know. 
but Paul doesn't include it. He says he appeared to Peter and then to the 12, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time. This is a part of the story that's not shared in the Gospels. We don't know when this happened, where it happened, who the 500 were, but Paul says, hey, most of them are still living. If you don't believe me, go find one of the 500 and they can tell you. And then he appears to James' brother, the first pastor of the church in Jerusalem, and then to all of the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born, i.e. Paul wasn't born at the right time to see Jesus resurrected before he ascended, so Jesus makes a special appearance on the day he heads to Samaria. 500 people at once. Why does he wait 40 days? Because if Jesus only had appeared on one day, people would have been very quick to say, you were just making that up. And be honest, wouldn't you wonder if you were making it up too? If you just had one brief glimpse of a resurrected Savior, I think some of us would begin to wonder, did I really see that? Did that really happen? Jesus wanted to make certain that there was no doubt as to what happened. So for 40 days, he ministered, he went about, and he spoke about the kingdom of God. One of the things Jesus had to do during that 40 days is correct an awful lot of the disciples. We don't have time this morning to go through all the passages. I'd encourage you sometime to go through the scriptures, and, and anytime you find this statement, they didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. Underline it. It is amazing how often you will read. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, he will rise. They didn't understand it until he died and rose from the dead. In John chapter 2, he's going to say, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it was 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he spoke of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. In John chapter 12, at first his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and they, that they had done these things to him. I suspect Jesus spent an awful lot of time teaching exactly the same things he had taught him before the resurrection. But now he had their attention. He clarified exactly the point of his ministry. But it's interesting to me that the Great Commission is only found after the resurrection. Why didn't Jesus send out his disciples before the resurrection? Why does Matthew include the the Great Commission in chapter 28 at the very end of the chapter? Why is it in Mark after the resurrection? I was tempted to spend the morning just on this verse because this verse, I, I, I saw two things in this verse I'd never seen before. If you begin to understand exactly what the disciples were looking for, the disciples and the Jews were looking for a king who would come with the military power to overthrow Rome. And Jesus says, you will receive power. Not power to defeat Rome, power to transform Rome. 
Not, not power to, to endure Rome, but power to overcome Rome. Power to outlast Rome. Rome is but a blip in history. And yet the church of Jesus Christ continues. See, the power that Jesus was promising was not the power that they were expecting, but I would argue it was a greater power than simply a military victory. It was a power to change the lives and hearts of men. But the second thing I'd never noticed before is you can go to Matthew chapter 28 and you can argue that the Great Commission is a command. You can't do that in Acts 1, verse 8. There's no command there. It's just a comment. That when you receive the power of the Holy Spirit, you will be witnesses. That's the natural result. You will be witnesses. If you are not a witness, it's because you're not filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. The natural result is as God changes us, we can't keep it to ourselves. And as God changes the disciples, they begin to be witnesses first in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. In fact, I, I think one of the clearest evidences of the power of the Holy Spirit living in us is the excitement to talk about his son. How many times last week did the conversation shift to Jesus? I am convinced that an evidence of his power in our hearts is that we want everybody we're in contact with to know about our Savior. Why is the incension important to me? Does it really make any difference to me? Can I suggest three reasons? The first is because it provides a pattern of life. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, who being in the very nature God, if I can go back to my whole deity of Christ, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written about 65 A.D. Philippians, where Paul is keeping no punches back, was written in about 63, so this whole deity of Jesus didn't begin until 90. It doesn't make any sense because Paul is writing in 60 and is clearly saying, Jesus who is in the very nature of God in every way, in every essence, all that God is, so is Jesus. But he decided that he didn't have to grasp onto that deity. He didn't have to demand that you recognize the deity. Rather, he laid aside the right he had to be seen as deity, and he clothed himself in humanity. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The pattern of ministry is humble yourself and God will exalt you. In fact, Paul, if you go back to the very beginning of the statement, is going to say this is the very attitude all of us should have. But I have to be honest, I'd prefer just to skip to the exaltation part. I, I don't always really like the humbling part. Humbling is hard. It's not much fun. It's difficult. And yet God's pattern for all of our lives is for us to humble ourselves 
and he will exalt us. My guess is that uh, Jim Elliott is a name that most of you are familiar with. Jim Elliott graduated from uh, Wheaton Bible College, was a star athlete, was extremely intelligent, and many thought had great things in front of him, but Jim felt called to one of the most remotest places on earth. He went to the Amazon rainforest, and he and four of his friends made it their life goal to reach many of the peoples in the Amazon who no one had ever reached and to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Their passion was to reach a tribe they called the Alcas. And they went for months trying to find them. And then when they found them, they began to drop things from an airplane and began to build a relationship. And it appeared that this, this crowd, this tribe that was hostile to outsiders was maybe open they built a camp just a little ways away from where the Alcas were. But on a fateful day in 1955, the Alcas rushed the five missionaries and took all of their lives. Humanly speaking, it was a great tragedy to being willing to humble yourself even to death. And yet, Jim Elliot, in the presence of God, is going to be exalted higher than most of us will ever imagine. But I find it fascinating. Had Jim Elliot taken the path of fame and fortune, you would have never known of him. How many CEOs from 1950 can you name? Who was the richest man in 1950? I don't know. And yet Jim Elliot's life created an entire wave of missionaries from around the world that decided they would give their lives to taking the gospel to the unreached people groups of the world. Thousands of men and women gave their life because Jim did. Humble yourself and God will exalt you. Secondly, it reminds us of his return. In Luke's account, he says, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes into a cloud, hid from them and their sights, and they were looking intently into the sky, and as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stare, stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way You've seen him go into heaven. The ascension is the reminder that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God for the moment. But soon, I don't know if that's later today or a thousand years from now, but soon he will return and he will make all that is wrong right. But we're blessed because of it. If we had time, we could go to Hebrews chapter 10 and in Hebrews he pictures this whole system that was created that if you sinned you were expected to bring a sacrifice into the temple if every time you sinned you had to take a sacrifice into the temple how many times would you go to the city of Jerusalem a thousand a thousand a day and yet, because Jesus sits at the right hand of the throne of God, he has paid the price so that all of my sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. But even more amazing is this morning, 
Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, this very moment interceding for you. The the book of Job is that interesting story of Satan entering the presence of God to accuse Job of being a man who follows God only because God has blessed him. May I suggest that Satan does that about you? And every time the accusations are correct and the son stands up and says, yes, he is a failure, but I paid for his sins. And the father says, case dismissed. So how should I live in in light of the account? If I could just for the the last five minutes we have, go back to to Luke's account. He he says in verse 50, and when they led him out in the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. And Luke is gonna share that they did three things. The first is they returned to Jerusalem. That may not seem all that significant, but if you put it together with the Acts 1 account, you know that Jesus had commanded them to go there. And that's exactly what they do. May I suggest that the Christian life begins with obedience. Most of us aren't always great at obedience because we oftentimes have a a better idea. No, 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 Jesus, wouldn't it make more sense if we just stayed right here on the Mount of Olives? I I mean, the the city of Jerusalem is dirty. It's filled with people. It's it's too crowded. It's too noisy. Uh, The Mount of Olives is beautiful. How about if we just stay here, Jesus? This would be a great place. But they didn't do that. They simply obeyed. And I have to say, This one perplexes me a little. They returned with great joy. Have you lost a loved one? This January, my father passed away. And I am absolutely confident because as a young boy, he placed his faith in Christ that my father is so much better off than he has been for the last 60 years. I am so excited that he is in the presence of his Savior and there is no pain, there is no more suffering. He is doing so much better than I can even begin to imagine. But as I sat at his bedside and he took his last breath, I can't honestly say great joy is what I was feeling. I'm happy for him, but just a wee, okay, some days more than a wee bit sad for me. Jesus has left them and they respond with great joy. I don't know if I understand it completely, but may I offer this as a suggestion? They were incredibly sad when he died. They were unbelievably excited when he rose from the dead. And the ascension simply proves to them that death is not the end. And thus, even though Jesus is gone, there is great joy because death isn't the end. But if you notice, he begins and ends the verse largely in the same way that the ascension drove the disciples to worship. I I, I fear that sometimes we use big words, we use churchy words, 
we call this a worship service. If I were to ask you to take out a sheet of paper and define the word worship, how would you define it? How, how is what we're doing right now worship? See, I, I fear that sometimes we get so comfortable with the words we use in church that we don't always stop and think about them. And, and, and my guess is that worship is not a word that you use a whole lot in everyday language. I would suggest worship really isn't that complicated. It's just simply praising someone for their greatness, their goodness. Worship is simply my willingness to stop the busyness of life, to contemplate and to praise God for who he is and for what he's currently doing and what he's promised he will do for all eternity. Matt Redman is a name that I'm guessing most of you are familiar with. In the 1990s, he was actually a worship leader in a church in Great Britain. He put together a very impressive worship band. In fact, on Sunday mornings, it was better than many of the concerts you might go to. But the pastor of the church grew increasingly concerned that the song service was becoming much more a show than it was worship. And so one week in between services, he went into the auditorium and he removed all of the sound system, removed all of the instruments from the platform, and the next Sunday when people came, he challenged them that before we use an instrument or have a song leader come, we are going to examine our worship. Are we simply here to enjoy the songs of professional musicians or are we truly responding from the heart to who God is? They sang a cappella for the next several months. And as the, the church began to stop and to contemplate what worship truly looked like, Matt wrote a song. My guess is it's a song most of you are familiar with. It was a song that was never really intended for anyone other than his church. When the music fades and all is stripped away and I simply come longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. I bring you more than a song for a song in itself is not what I have, you have required. You search much deeper within through the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. The heart of worship is all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I hope as we contemplate the ascension of Christ, it will propel us to worship. Father, I, I thank you for coming. I thank you for dying. I thank you for the glorious resurrection. But I thank you also for being willing to ascend to the right hand of the throne of God, interceding on our behalf this morning, and one day soon, returning to take us to be with you forever. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Thank you. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.